0: Welcome to the Certified OCS Prep Podcast. I'm Alexis. And I'm Amanda. And we're here to help you prepare for your OCS test. So today we're going to go
1: over the knee pain and mobility impairment clinical practice Guideline. This is another one like Alexis mentioned on the last knee one we did. It's been updated. I will tell you in several sections of this CPG, they do make reference to the 2010 CPG and how stuff isn't necessarily changed. So I think it's important to have access to both of them. Um, and I'll kind of point out where they mention referencing back to the 2010. So the first thing we're going to discuss is the incidence. So injuries to the meniscus are the second most common injury to the knee with a prevalence anywhere from 12 to 14%. And they estimate 61 cases per 100,000. There's a high incidence of meniscus tear that occur with an ACL injury in approximately 22 to 86 patients. So a huge range there. Um, Again, you're going to see that more in your athletic population, not your degenerative meniscus tears. For articular cartilage lesions, the other big topic covered in this CPG, they estimate the prevalence to be between 60 and 70% based on studies of knee arthroscopies. The incidence of isolated articular cartilage lesions um, is lower, so they estimate 32 to 58%, and they estimate that most of them are a result of a traumatic non-contact mechanism. 64% of them, so again, most articular cartilage lesions are less than one centimeter. Important to know about articular cartilage lesions, the most frequent area for them to be present is on the medial femoral condyle and the patellar articular surface. Uh, So you're not gonna see them nearly as often on the lateral side. Medial meniscus tears and ACL ruptures were the most common injuries occurring with articular cartilage injuries. So it's important to know that if you're screening a patient for Meniscus injury or an ACL tear to know that they may also have articular cartilage involvement. So, in the updated summary, they say that meniscus lesions account for almost one quarter of all knee injuries. In high school athletes, girls have a higher incidence of meniscus tears than boys. And older individuals have a higher rate of meniscus tears compared to younger individuals. So that's going to be the big thing there, too, is differentiating, again, those degenerative tears versus um, an acute or traumatic athletic-type tear. Lateral meniscus tears are more likely to occur in younger athletes, and medial meniscus tears are more likely to occur in older people. And I think that's because a lot of times in older people, you tend to start to see that valgus positioning and some OA through the medial compartment. A high prevalence of meniscus tears are present in individuals undergoing primary and revision ACL reconstruction. So that's kind of a subsequent finding. And individuals over 45, older than 45 years of age are more likely to have a meniscectomy, whereas individuals younger than 35 are more likely to have a meniscus repair. Um, Prevalence of articular cartilage, like we said, in athletes ranges from 17 to 59, so a huge range they do mention that some athletes remain asymptomatic even though they have an articular cartilage lesion, which I thought was interesting. I feel like in my clinical practice when I see an articular cartilage lesion, which isn't all that often, um, I feel like they're pretty symptomatic. Do you see a lot of articular cartilage lesions, Alexis? I know you work with pretty active patients.
0: No, I definitely see a lot of um, meniscal tears, but not not so much on the articular cartilage lesions.
1: Sure, and I think that's probably pretty true across everybody, most people studying. So I would spend a little more time, like when you're reviewing the CBG, going over the articular cartilage management part of this. Um, And then they also mentioned that the incidence rate of articular cartilage lesions is higher after a meniscectomy or a second ACL injury. So if you'll recall from the last uh, podcast episode we did, and Alexis talked about ACLs and how high of a recurrence of retear or involvement on the other side there is. If you're having a patient after a retear or a subsequent injury, um, definitely have a heightened sense of potential articular cartilage involvement. So, meniscectomies, majority of meniscectomies are performed in 45 to 54-year-olds and 55 to 64-year-old age groups, whereas 25 to 34-year-old age groups typically undergo meniscal repairs. So, if you're if a patient's asking you, you know, you're, that's not really up to you. That's up to the surgeon. But just know that those are kind of your cutoffs. 45 and over generally is going to be a meniscectomy. 34 and under is generally going to be a repair. If they fall between 34 and 45, I guess it's kind of a toss-up. Um, probably defer to the surgeon. It probably depends on the extent. It probably depends on the patient. Um, but I don't think it'll come to a surprise to anybody. But the management of those two in the post-operative phase is very, very different. So moving into the pathoanatomical features, the, um, the meniscus is composed of fibrocartilage, it's wedge-shaped. The, you'll recall the lateral meniscus is more circular, the medial meniscus is more crescent-shaped, the lateral meniscus is more mobile than the medial meniscus. And the function of the meniscus is to distribute stress across the knee during weight-bearing activities, provide shock absorption, and serve as that secondary stabilizer. They provide the articular cartilage, the nutrition and lubrication for smooth joint mechanics to facilitate that gliding. They help prevent hyperextension and protect the joint line. Individuals who sustain a meniscal tear report similar history as an individual with an ACL tear. They will often report feeling a pop when suddenly changing direction with or without contact. The rate of medial meniscus tears increases over time whereas lateral meniscus tears do not. They also mentioned that prolonged delay in ACL reconstruction are related to an increased occurrence of meniscus injuries. So sometimes you'll see it, a meniscus injury after a patient, you know, if they've been deemed as a coper for their ACL injury and they're going to try to get back to higher level participation and they sustain a re-injury, oftentimes it's it's also accompanied with a meniscus injury at that point. Um, that's another another point to mention there is When you're pre-having somebody for an ACL reconstruction, really getting them through that phase as quick as you can and getting them into that surgical phase if that's where it's headed, just to try to minimize their likelihood of also sustaining a meniscus involvement if they don't already. So the articular cartilage is the covering that, is the cartilage that covers the gliding surfaces of the knee joint. It's hyaline in nature and it decreases the friction. So the big difference here, it also acts as a shock absorber and resists wear, but it also withstands compression, whereas the meniscus is not necessarily for that same function. Like we already said, injuries to the articular cartilage can be the result of acute trauma or repetitive minor trauma. Many lesions are non-progressive and remain asymptomatic, while some experts believe that even small asymptomatic lesions may increase in size and eventually become painful if left untreated. So I think the jury's kind of still out on that. Um, like I said, I think sometimes these patients do come to me symptomatic, but I guess the research t- generally shows they, they could remain asymptomatic. Um, four methods of operative care are widely used. They have the lavage and debridement, microfracture, what they call an ACI or an autologous chondrocyte implantation procedure or an OAT procedure, which is an osteochondral autograph transplantation. I don't know that it's particularly important to know all of the ins and outs of those surgical procedures. I would be aware of them, mostly because they're referenced very heavily throughout this CPG, and you'll see that as we go. Um, but just be aware that there's four. I know that the, the three they reference the most are the microfracture, the ACI, and the OAT procedure. When you're talking about surgical intervention for meniscus tears, partial meniscectomy is the primary surgical procedure used. Um, and microfracture procedures are largely used for younger patients. So keep that in mind. I, I, like I said before, yes, men, you're going to see more meniscectomies, I think, in the clinic, but meniscus repairs if your patients are younger. The next section we're going to move into is the clinical course. Um, I will preface this by saying this section is very dense in this CPG. They go through a lot of a lot of research in here. Um, the interesting thing about this is they reference all of these research articles, and many of them are level one and level two evidence. So I think it's worth your time to read it. Um, it's divided between meniscus and articular cartilage, but I will tell you that not all of them were comparing the same outcomes or the same treatments or um, the same limitations from the patient, so it's a little bit difficult to generalize. But that's what we're going to attempt to do here. So when we're talking about the meniscus, one study that they referenced that did have good kind of generalize generalizability is they randomized 351 patients with a meniscus tear and mild to moderate knee into the um, menis- meniscectomy and rehabilitation or rehabilitation-only group, so they either had surgery and therapy after, or they only had therapy to manage. They were followed up at 6 and 12 months, and the results at 6 and 12 months were similar for two groups. Now, their outcomes that they used to measure were the WOMAC and the COUS. So keep that in mind. Those were patient-reported outcomes. Um, I guess hard to say in terms of any other objective measures if they would have been the same at two years out. Um, I I don't know what you think, Alexis, in terms of meniscectomy management. But that study, you know, to me, definitely aligns with clinical practice. I think I'm seeing less meniscectomies. I think I'm seeing a lot of doctors going towards more conservative management, longer, trying to do less less work in the in terms of removing the meniscus. Do you agree?
0: Yeah, I definitely agree. I think there's been a lot of recent research on. Yeah you know, the meniscus and its job and how if we're just like trimming pieces off what that looks like long term. And I think they're realizing that, you know, if people can have positive outcomes with conservative management only, then it's it's definitely worthwhile in the long run to go that route. And I
1: think this study in particular um, speaks to that because these patients that were included had not only meniscus tear, but they also had already developed mild to moderate knee OA. So, that's where you're going to potentially see a previous meniscectomy manifest itself as becoming more aggressive knee OA. Um, I also want to highlight a study that they did um, that investigated the proprioception and self-reported knee function preoperatively and three months after patients undergoing knee arthroscopy. At the follow-up, despite improvements in perceived knee function, so the patient's reported ability according to the... IKDC 2000, um, the Leisholm Index, and when they compared it to their preoperative scores, the surgical leg continued to demonstrate impaired proprioception compared to their normal contralateral knee and to healthy controls. So what that really speaks to is that these patients, even though they're having surgery and they're perceiving improvement, are they really better in terms of their function and their overall ability to use that operated leg? Um, you know, this study didn't go into detail about what they had done to assess proprioception. But regardless, I think it's important to know that whether it's because these patients are getting discharged too soon and they're not being rehabbed fully, which we'll talk about a little bit in the examination and intervention section, um, or whether it's that they don't notice the difference or they don't acknowledge it is, I think, up for debate. But just know that even though patients are reporting improvement, whether or not their overall improvement is there, you know, could be up for debate. Um, One of the studies here, too, says of the variables assessed in this particular study where they, again, they related um, patient-specific factors at at 12 months after surgery, female sex and greater osteoarthritis severity were associated with slower um, rate of short-to-intermediate-term pain recovery and functional recovery in their overall knee status. So, again, if you're choosing someone who has a greater severity of OA to begin with, they may or may not have a good outcome. If they're female sex, that's probably gonna make it a little bit more difficult. They're generally not gonna have as favorable of an outcome when you're looking at short-term and intermediate outcomes. Um, A study where they evaluated preoperative MRI features and clinical outcomes a year later, so this was an imaging study, Suggest that poor clinical outcomes after surgery were associated with greater severity of cartilage loss and bone edema, specific to the compartment of the meniscal tear. So they mentioned in this study, meniscal root tears were associated with an increased risk for limited improvement in middle-aged and older patients following meniscectomy. So again, I don't think that's surprising information Obviously, wherever they, like Alexis just said, if we're shaving away parts of that meniscus over time, what is that doing to us in the long term, especially in those middle-aged and older patients? And an MRI study a year out is going to show that they have a greater loss of cartilage and bone edema, specific to where they had their meniscus tear. Moving into the articular cartilage, um, the one study they reference. Suggest patients with smaller articular cartilage, cartilage lesions, which they mention is less than five centimeters, treated with microfracture surgery, who returned to low load activities postoperatively, had good short-term outcomes. Patients with small lesions who returned to higher demand activity had an increased progressive failure rate. For larger lesions, which they define as greater than four centimeters, so there's a, in this study there's a gap between four and five, so I'm not exactly sure, you know, I'd have to go back and really read the full study to know what they were referencing there. But they say that for those larger lesions, self-reported outcomes improved for up to five years after microfracture surgery. Uh, The authors also suggest that younger patients, regardless of their lesion size, had better outcomes than older patients. So the thing to note here is that the activities that we give them in therapy can be directly related to their to their rate of success and their rate of failure. Now, what exactly defines a low load activity versus a high load activity or a high demand activity? I think there's some gray there. You know, they didn't specifically outline what activities they did, but just be aware that you wanna keep it as a low load activity for a smaller articular cartilage lesion. Another study was a systematic review of the OCT procedure. Compared to other articular repair procedures, so like your microfractures, they report that high demand athletes with an OCT had a superior clinical and self reported outcome measures compared to athletes after microfracture surgery. So it's important to know, too, like depending on the patient population you're working with, um, you know, make sure you're reading your surgical reports, make sure you have a good relationship if you're working with the same surgeons over and over to really understand what procedure they're doing and what the patient wants to get back to. So, kind of in summary of the clinical course for meniscectomy, they can be managed with or without surgery. Both would be considered acceptable. They will; um, these patients will report lower knee function compared to the general population, regardless of how they're managed, which is interesting. Patients who have not had who have non-operative management for meniscus tear have similar to better outcomes in terms of strength and perceived knee function in the short-term and intermediate compared to those who had a meniscectomy. And I think that really speaks to the fact, I know you run into this some too, Alexis, is sometimes patients undergo surgery and they think that's just going to fix it. They think that they're just going to go about their day, you know, and meniscectomies especially because they're done arthroscopically now and the superficial wounds heal so well, but, you know, patients don't understand that a menisectomy like the meniscus is poorly vascularized and the internal healing takes much longer. So I think that's potentially why those non-op or conservatively managed patients actually report better function in the short and intermediate term. Do you have anything there, Alexis, to add about um, meniscus menisectomies?
0: No, I mean, I, I agree with you. And I think that oftentimes too, like, It's even presented to them as not really a big deal in terms of surgery because it's not, they're not necessarily repairing, you know, an ACL or something like that. And so um, it's presented as like, oh, it's pretty quick and easy. And I've definitely had a lot of patients after a meniscectomy say, I thought this was going to be like a lot easier. I thought I'd be back much sooner. So, you know, that's something, obviously, if you're seeing these patients and you're initial evaluation part of the conversation that you can have with them that would be helpful for them uh, yeah
1: and here in the summary too they mentioned elite and competitive athletes or athletes younger than 30 years old are likely to return to sport less than two months after a meniscectomy and athletes older than 30 years are likely to return by three months so that's a general timeline I think you could give them but of course that's where clinical judgment comes in and you need to just really know your patient and their goals So, to summarize articular cartilage management and course of care, um, athletes with the OAT procedure have a higher rate of self-reported knee function, which I said, they return to sport with more success, and they have a maintenance level of activity compared to athletes with an ACI or microfracture that's higher. So, they're able to get back stronger, a little bit faster, a little bit better, and they, I think the big thing there is they have a higher, they have a self-reported higher rate of knee function, which, like we talked about in the ACL, when we were talking about ACLs, is how confident are these patients in their ability, you know, to get back? You know, do they have that apprehension going back? Are they fearful of movement? So I think that's important to know when you're talking about this particular articular cartilage repair. When you're referencing an ACI specifically procedure, um, these patients return, well, their return rate to activity, higher level activity is high, but it's a delayed return. And the failure rates and reoperation rates for this, for an ACI procedure is high. So I think, you know, more so for the surgeons than us, but just choosing the best procedure based on the patient's goals. And then they say microfracture procedures are the most appropriate with good outcomes for smaller articular cartilage lesions and those returning to low demand sports. Those with small lesions returning to high-demand sports with a microfracture generally have a progressively higher failure rate. So that kind of summarizes what they're going to, the course of care for meniscus and articular cartilage. talk about the risk factors. So a systematic review for meniscus, a systematic review of 11 studies found strong evidence that a grade 8 or than 60, male sex, work-related kneeling tasks and or squatting tasks, and climbing more than 30 flights of stairs per day were associated with the occurrence of degenerative meniscus tears. Now 30 flights of stairs sounds like a lot, but what I will say is that when you're talking about someone who has a physical manual labor job, keep in mind that can also be a ladder. You know, it's that stepping up or in and out of a truck. So maybe not 30 flights straight, but just keep in mind those people that are doing stairs a lot are at an increased risk. They also say playing soccer and rugby were strong risk factors for acute meniscus tears. And a delayed ACL reconstruction was a strong risk factor for for a future medial meniscus tear. They say consistent evidence was found that the extent of meniscectomy was associated with knee osteoarthritis. The incidence of knee OA was reported higher after meniscectomy in those with degenerative meniscus tears compared to those with traumatic tears. Age at surgery, sex, Duration of follow-up, cartilage status, body mass index, functional results, and impairments were inconsistent in their association with NEOA. So again, what I would question there is, okay, so if the patients are having a you know, a higher incidence of NEOA after meniscectomy and they had a degenerative tear, was any of that present beforehand um, versus those um, acute meniscus tears? You know, those patients likely are probably going to be a little bit younger. They probably don't have any onset of knee OA yet. So they also mention here radiographic evidence of joint degeneration after a partial meniscectomy was present in in up to 60% of patients. So that's a lot, um, you know, to the extent of what that degeneration is or, you know, mild, moderate, severe OA is not detailed, but it's important to know up to 60% of patients show radiographic evidence Among women specifically, previous injury or impairment and lower preoperative fitness level were risk factors for slower post-op recovery, which, again, shouldn't be surprising. I think that that's probably true across more more general population than just women, but keep that in mind. And then this one study, they specifically reference the author examined the prevalence of meniscus and cartilage lesions and ACL reconstructions. They report an increase of an average of 0.6 for each month of delayed ACL reconstruction. So they say a delay of 12 months for ACL reconstruction increased the odds of developing a medial meniscus tear and developing a cartilage lesion on the medial femoral condyle and on the medial tibial plateau. They say this is higher in males. So just keep that in mind, Um, again, when you're talking about managing these patients and how long you're going to see them before before you get them over to see the surgeon for their ACL reconstruction. So articular cartilage lesions, they say that um, in a study of 88 patients, women and having a previous multiple knee injuries, previous bone marrow stimulation procedures and periosteum patch are associated with significantly higher risk of surgical revisions, of need for surgical revisions. You know, I think it's interesting here, they don't really detail what previous multiple injuries or knee surgeries was, um, but just be aware that if you're seeing a patient with a lot of chronic knee issues that maybe isn't just okay, be have a heightened sense of awareness that it may be an articular cartilage issue. For our patients that are younger in age and have high six duration of symptoms, Fewer previous knee procedures and smaller graft size predicted a better five-year outcome score. And an earlier return to full weight bearing your patient satisfaction score. So in summary, cutting and pivoting sports are risk factors for acute meniscus tears. Increased age and delayed ACL reconstruction are risk factors for future medial and lateral meniscus tears female sex, older age, higher bmi, lower physical activity and delayed acl reconstruction are risk factors for medial meniscus tears. female sex, older age, higher body mass index, longer symptom duration and previous procedures and surgeries and lower self-reported knee function are associated with higher failures with articular cartilage repair procedures. So that kind of gives you that kind of covers our general overview um, pathology of these types of lesions, meniscus and articular cartilage. What we're going to move into now is the diagnosis and classification of these of these cases. So what you're going to see in our clinical findings, they're going to have knee pain, some history of twisting of, of a knee mechanism, catching or locking, delayed onset of effusion or swelling, and what they call a meniscal pathology composite score. We'll go into that in a little bit, but you're looking for a score greater than three positive findings are going to be used to classify patients with knee pain and mobility disorders into this ICD category of meniscus tear. Now clinical findings for articular cartilage lesions. You're looking for intermittent knee pain, history of acute trauma to the knee, you're gonna see that same catching or locking, effusion, joint line tenderness may classify patients with knee pain and mobility disorders, so just be aware that if they're having that also that joint line tenderness with some of those other articular cartilage findings, you're going to see um, potentially both to classifications. So what I will that, tell you.
0: You're going to see potentially what?
1: You're going to see potentially um, both an articular cartilage and a meniscus involvement. Okay. So what we're going to talk about now is the decision tree model that they've outlined in the CPG. That's how they've kind of decided to break this down to move through the clinical management of these patients. The first component is medical screening, which is where we as the clinician are incorporating the findings of the history and the physical examination to determine whether the patient's appropriate for our intervention or whether they need referral to another healthcare provider. So, that's your classic treat, treat and refer or refer only. The second component is the differential evaluation or differential diagnosis. Um, you know, as a clinician, as the patient's talking to us, as we're gathering our clinical findings, we need to be thinking of, yes, this patient fits into this category of um, clinical findings to rule in or rule out meniscus pathology or articular cartilage pathology, or no, they don't. And if they don't, these are the other diagnoses I'm thinking, and then determining whether or not that's appropriate for your care or if they need referral. So that's where coming to know your common clinical findings to rule in or rule out, and their impairment patterns is really important. The third component is the irritability level. Essentially, it's the tissue's ability to handle physical stress and its response to that stress. It's presumably related to the physical status and the extent of injury and inflammatory activity that is present. However, This is also where, as a clinician, you need to understand there are other biopsychosocial elements that the patient brings to the table that may or may not be directly related to the stage of irritability. So that's, you know, how, what's the patient's perceived disability, what's their level of activity avoidance, what's their fear, um, all of that, and whether or not you can give them interventions that match their level of irritability or don't. That being said, I think patients can also bring biopsychosocial elements to the table that go the other way. You know, are they overdoing it? Are they, you know, are they kind of lacking insight into the severity of their injury or the need for their rehab to go at a certain pace? And are they kind of overdoing it, making it more irritable, and you need to kind of scale them back? So just being aware of the actual tissue irritability versus what your patient can handle in terms of tissue irritability. So, looking at the chart itself, that covers component one, component two. Um, The clinical findings for meniscus, you're going to see that classic twisting injury. They're going to complain of a pop or they say in here a tearing sensation. The swelling is going to be a little bit delayed, anywhere from 6 to 24 hours after injury. They're going to have that continued catching or locking, or sometimes patients will describe it as a click. They have pain with forced hyperextension, pain with maximum passive knee flexion, so kind of pain at those extremes of motion. There's going to be a pain or audible click with the McMurray's maneuver or the McMurray's test. They're going to have joint line tenderness, discomfort, or a sense of locking or catching in the knee over the medial or lateral aspect during Thessaly's test when performed at 20 degrees. Um, I will say one thing I don't think they cover as in depth as I think is important to know um, regarding meniscus management is the sensitivity, specificity of the various special tests. I will tell you there's a really great chart in the current concepts regarding that. So if you haven't already looked at that, I would encourage you to look at that in conjunction with going over the CPG. And then what they talk about, again, is that meniscal pathology composite score. So that's the combination of the history with the catching or locking, pain with forced hyperextension, pain with maximum passive knee flexion, and pain or an audible clip with McMurray's. So again, a score of three or three or more of those components is going to increase your likelihood of having a meniscus injury. Now, articular cartilage clinical findings. You're going to see an acute trauma Um with hemarthrosis for zero to two hours. So that's where you're going to see the osteochondral fracturing is going to cause that. The insidious onset aggravated by repetitive impact activities, intermittent pain and swelling, history of catching or locking, and again, that joint line tenderness. So be cautious about those last couple of components there, that catching, locking, or joint line tenderness. That's going to be present in both meniscus and articular cartilage. And that's where I think you kind of need to have a heightened sense of Does this patient potentially have both going on? Have they had multiple, multiple pathologies with one injury? The next component there, like we talked about is determining that stage of irritability. Um, That's really clinical judgment. And, you know, I wouldn't underestimate that part. If you overdose these patients with interventions, whether it be exercise, manual, neuromuscular reeducation, whatever the case may be specifically, if you overdose them, you're just gonna make that tissue too irritable to tolerate anything else. The next component they talk about here are the outcome measures, which are the standardized tools used for measuring a specific domain, whether it's body structure function, activity or participation restriction. Um, Again, they mentioned it's important to do that at evaluation, at least at one one midpoint follow-up, and again at discharge. I think that's something we've talked about every single CPG, so really the overarching theme there is you really need to know your outcome measures. We'll go through a couple of them here. Um, But I can't, I don't think Alexis or I both could undervalue that for you. And I think we've both made a point to really kind of go over those as we've been going through these. And then the fifth component in this chart they mentioned is the tear pattern of the meniscus or the size of the articular cartilage lesion and the clinical signs and symptoms. Now, when we talk about tear patterns and articular cartilage lesion size, I think if, you know, if you have access to that information consistently, great. I think the more you know, the better you're going to be able to, to help the patient. Do I think it's absolutely essential to know that information to help these patients? I would say probably not. I would say sometimes I feel like as the therapist, we're lucky if they tell us whether it's a medial or a lateral meniscus. You know, the patient will come in. If you don't work directly with that physician, the patient comes in and says, well, I know I have meniscus tear, the doctor told me. I'm like, well, did they tell you what side it's on or anything? The patient has no idea. Um, So I wouldn't get hung up on that. But again, the more you know, the better. But know that I don't think it's crucial to know exactly all of the details of that pathology to treat these patients. Do you have anything on that, Alexis, in terms of details about tears or sizes of lesions?
0: Um, No, nothing specific to add. I, I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, it's just making sure you... Are aware of these and kind of understand them, and and whether or not it would change any of your treatment, but yeah. nothing specific. Yeah.
1: So when we're talking about evaluating these meniscus patients, what measures are we going to implement here? The impairment measures that you look at as the therapist, you're looking at their pain at rest, pain at pain at best, rest best and worst. So I would say worst, or sometimes I phrase that as not just the worst, but pain with activity and right after activity for these patients the pain frequency, the level of pain. And we talked about before that modified stroke test for knee effusion. Um, that's where you're just basically the therapist is looking for edema in the over the patellar region. You're doing um, active and passive range of motion, again, with that overpressure to determine if that, that maximum flexion causes pain. You're looking for their quad strength. They mention in here using like Maximum voluntary isometric or isokinetic quadriceps strength testing. I don't think everybody always has that. But if you have a handheld dynamometer that you can use, I think that's helpful um, to pick up on those minute differences. You're looking for pain with forced hyperextension, that passive knee flexion pain, uh, positive McMurray's, and joint line tenderness. Now, activity limitations that the patient's going to report in their self-reported measures. You're going to look, use the IKDC-2000 and the COOS, They also recommend the Tegner Scale or the Marks Activity Rating Scale, the KQOL, which we'll go over these here in a minute, or the Short Form 36 or the EQ5D. Um, That's got a long name to it, so we'll go back over that in a minute. And then the physical performance measures you want to look at in the patients with meniscus pathology. The early rehabilitation, you want to look at your stair climb test, your timed up and go, your six-minute walk tests later phase of rehab down the road, you want to, for your return to sport or activity, you want to look at single leg hop tests. For your articular cartilage pathology, your exam is going to include that pain at rest, best and worst, or during activity, after activity, the frequency of the pain, the level of their pain while they're performing their most aggravating movements. Again, you're looking for the edema with the modified stroke test, the assessment of active and passive knee range of motion, your quad strength testing, joint line tenderness, Um, activity limitations are exactly, the outcome measures are exactly the same for the meniscus. And then actually the physical performance measures that they recommend for articular lesions are the same as the meniscus. One thing I don't think they put on here that I think is really important in this population, not just assessing like quad strength. Yes, they're looking at the maximum voluntary isometric quad strength here, but just doing your general lower extremity strength assessment. I think really checking hip strength in these people, I find a lot of times, especially in my younger athletes, females, they don't have adequate hip strength. And I think a lot of times that predisposes them or leads them to this position. Um, And sometimes when they're acutely irritated, they don't tolerate a lot of work right at the knee. Start working up at their hip. Just get them moving a little bit. Try to get them over that fear of moving. Kind of try to loosen them up. Encourage them to move again and see if you can work in that way. Do you have anything to add on um, examination measures that you use for that Alexis for other ever- No. Okay. The other thing they talk about in here before we move on to the true full examination section are the imaging studies. Uh, one thing I want to bring your attention to are the Ottawa knee rules. It's basically a tool to help clinicians determine when to order radiographs in individuals with acute knee injuries. It has a sensitivity of 0.99 and a specificity of 0.49. So they suggest that a knee radiograph series is required in patients with any of the following criteria. 55 or over, isolated tenderness of the patella, no bone tenderness of the knee other than the patella, tenderness of the fibula, fibular head, inability to flex the knee to 90 degrees, inability to bear weight both immediately and in the emergency department for four steps, four steps, regardless of their limp. They also mentioned that clinical examination by well-trained clinicians appears to be as accurate as an MRI in regard to the diagnosis of meniscal lesions. So I think that's important to tell patients. I would say meniscus pathology is another population where I think patients come in and they say, well, I have to have six visits before they'll do an MRI to figure out if my meniscus is actually torn. Studies and research tells us that the MRI is maybe not as accurate as we think with that, or we are more accurate than we give ourselves credit for when it comes to that. And what they suggest MRI is being reserved for more complicated or confusing cases or where there's um, definite need for preoperative planning and prognosis. Do you have anything on imaging in these folks, Alexis, that you want to
0: add in? No, I mean, I think that was similar, to to what we talked about in the last um cpg you know and definitely know those auto and knee rules
1: sure yeah and make sure you differentiate them between the ankle rules too we'll get Mm -hmm. to those at some point but know that there's a couple sets of those Yep. Yep. so moving into the examination section we're going to go over those outcome measures again and i'm going to do it briefly because you've heard these before um and the there's nothing really groundbreaking here so just make sure that you're aware of them the first one they talk about using is the COOS, which we've, we've discussed, and they suggested specifically for people with articular cartilage lesions in these cases, it showed sensitivity to change from baseline um, up to 12 months after baseline. And they suggest that the minimal detectable change for this population is between 7.4 and 12.1. So a little bit of a range there, but just to give you an idea. So, for knee-specific outcomes, they recommend using the IKDC-2000 or the COOS. It's kind of funny, in this CPG, they go a lot into detail about using it in the appropriate language and culture for the patient population you're seeing. Um, I'm really not sure why in this CPG it goes into that much detail about that, but just be aware of that. Um, Then, they also suggest using the Tegner scale or the Marks Activity Rating Scale to assess activity level before and after interventions intended to alleviate the physical impairments, activity limitations, and participation restrictions associated with meniscus or articular cartilage lesions. Um, They have, those two scales have less evidence to support um, about measurement properties compared to the SF36 or the EQ5D. They say the SF-36 or the EQ-5D are appropriate general health measures in the population. And if you want to look at quality of life related to the knee, you should use the, KO, uh, the KQOL-26. Now, a couple of those I know we haven't talked about before. Um, they touch on them in here. So I'm going to tell you what they stand for. But if you want to read all of the specific reliability, sensitivities, all of that on them, there it's in here for you. The EQ5D is the European Quality of Life Five Dimension Scale. The SF36 is that short form um, 36 one that we talked about in the HIP outcomes also. The KQOL26 is the Knee Quality of Life questionnaire. It's a 26-item questionnaire um, with suspected ligament or meniscal injury. So, I think that pretty much covers those. If you have any specific questions about those, after you look back over them, um, you can always reach out to us, send us an email. So, they say, um, in terms of physical performance measures, that clinicians should administer appropriate um, field tests, such as your HOP testing. No. No. These are the same ones that Alexis went over in the ligament testing. This is where you really need to pull out the 2010 CPG because they don't go into them in the 2018 one. They they literally write under evidence update none and they recommend that you reference the 2010 CPG. So um, I'm going to go through them briefly, but know that they're outlined in better detail if you're unfamiliar with them in the 2010 CPG. The single leg hop test for distance, you're having them stand on one leg hopping as far as they can, they need to balance though on the landing. The next one is the crossover hop for distance, so um, how far they can go having three hops across the central line. The triple hop for distance is three hops, three consecutive hops on one foot, landing each one, how far are they able to go, and then a six meter time hop, so a defined distance of six meters, how long does it take them to hop on one leg from one to the other. Now. They really, in this CPG, recommend using it um, as a baseline status, checking it again at, you know, a month progress note, and then again at discharge or somewhere in the middle, Um, maybe not a month, but somewhere in the middle. What you're really looking for here are is global knee function. So yes, you get objective data, but I think the important thing with these tests, and you can comment here, Alexis, if you have anything to add, um, is the quality of information and the observed movements that you get by watching these patients do this. You know, Are they getting a lot of valgus force? Are they having trouble landing? Are they generating their hop with a lot of momentum versus being able to get good quad control and good quad contraction and power? Um, And then what is their side-to-side asymmetry look like? Is there a big difference? Is there not a big difference? You know, sometimes you'll see the same clinical, you know, you'll see the same presentation on both sides, but only one side symptomatic. Is that patient predisposed to having the same issue on the other side? I think all those things are important to look at when you're talking about um, functional testing like that. Do you have anything, Alexis? I know you probably do those tests quite a bit.
0: No, I don't have anything to add. Okay. I, I think you hit the nail on the head with that one. Yeah,
1: and if if you want more details about that, I know we talked about them more in the last podcast episode. So, too, if you haven't listened to that one, you, that may be enlightening to you also. Um, the next section talks about physical impairment measures, like I just said. Um, in your patients that you're not necessarily doing hop testing on, don't forget things about, like, your six-minute walk test, your tug, and that stair test. Those are all important. They have these little snippets in here where they call them best practice points. So what they recommend is that 30-second chair stand test, stair climb test, timed up and go, six-minute walk test, Um, your physical impairment measures like we already talked about, that joint line tenderness, McMurray's, maximum, maximum passive knee flexion, forced hyperextension, quad strength, knee effusion and active range of motion for your meniscus involvement. And then they recommend the same thing for that articular cartilage cartilage injuries. So wrapping up into the intervention section, there is quite a bit of research in this section. Again, though, like we've seen in a lot of the intervention sections, I can't say that a lot of it was really specific, um, detailed information about what they did. So the first section that they talk about is progressive knee motion. They say that clinicians should use early progressive active and passive knee motion after meniscus and articular cartilage surgeries. So there's no real recommendation for prolonged mobilization. Now, don't confuse that with weight-bearing restrictions in your meniscus repairs. Um, but basically getting that knee moving is a good thing. Um, the next one is progressive weight-bearing. And this is where you're, they talk about... Um, your meniscus repairs, they referenced one study that they had 28 patients after, actually this was after an articular cartilage lesion, but they do talk about meniscus repairs also, but they randomized them into an accelerated weight-bearing group and a standard of care weight-bearing group. So the accelerated weight-bearing group did that stepwise progression, you know, 25%, 50%, 75% um, with full weight-bearing achieved by six weeks the standard of care group, same stepwise progression, but over an eight-week course. At six and 12 months after the procedure, the patients in the accelerated group had a better COOS quality of life score compared to the standard of care group. And both groups demonstrated progressive graft tissue healing with no difference between their healing at either time. So I think that's suggestive of, you know, Yes, you need to go by physician protocol, but getting these patients moving sooner in terms of weight bearing, getting their motion back sooner, may lead them to a better, longer term outcome. So the summary there is that with level B evidence, they should use a clinician should use a stepwise progression of weight bearing to reach full weight bearing by eight weeks, if not sooner, at six weeks. Um, for articular cartilage lesions, certainly go off any specific surgeon protocol. You know, maybe they had to do something else. Maybe there was more involvement, that kind of a thing. And then they recommend early progressive weight bearing um, in patients with meniscal repairs. The section on progressive return to activity is exactly the same as it was in 2010. It's very short and sweet. They say use, utilize early progressive return to activity following, following these surgeries um, for meniscus. And then based on expert opinion, um, clinicians may need to delay return to activity depending on the type of articular cartilage surgery. So, again, I think that's going to be surgeon-specific. I think that most of these patients that come to you probably have a specific protocol or surgical guidelines. Follow that. Um, But, again, I think with return to activity, it just has to be graded. You have to be mindful on how you're doing it and just making sure that you're being aware of that level of irritability, In here, they have a section on supervised rehabilitation. Um, In general here, they recommend that all of these patients, whether it be for a meniscus involvement or an articular cartilage pathology, that they go through a supervised rehabilitation program, whether they have surgery or not, Um, basically, and that that should be supplemented with a home-based exercise program. There's a couple studies in here that go through um, comparing home exercise program only given by a surgeon to structured rehabilitation in a clinic, and all of the patients, for the most part, in the clinic settings did better um, a little bit sooner and got back to higher level activity. Even if they all reached there at some point, the um, patients in the clinic did better sooner with less um, flares and irritability. So I think that that's important to know also. So the next section they talk about is therapeutic exercise, which, of course, is the bulk of what we're using to treat these patients. Essentially, their recommendation is you should provide supervised progressive range of motion exercises, strength training to the hip and the knee muscles, and neuromuscular training to patients with meniscus tears and articular cartilage lesions after their surgery. Now, again, there's a bunch of research articles. There's no specific set of exercises that they say is better than another. Um, just making sure that it's graded, that it's um, a stepwise progression, um, and that you're targeting both the involved and uninvolved if it's necessary. You know, if you're trying to get back someone back to higher level athletic, giving them a little bit of injury prevention can go a long way. And then lastly, the section in here um, for treatment is the neuromuscular electrical stimulation or the biofeedback. With level B evidence, they say that clinicians should provide neuromuscular stimulation or re-education to patients following the meniscus procedures to increase the quad strength. I think that's something a lot of people do. I don't think that's new. Um, But what they will say is that this treatment, you know, using neuromuscular re-edit stem gives you a better earlier outcome. It may not be clinically significant longer term. If a patient's getting their quad back and they're doing okay with it, probably don't have to do it, but it may give you a better earlier outcome. I would say that I do do it quite a bit in terms of these specific cases. I don't know about you, Alexis, just to try to get them there sooner. I
0: think Mm -hmm. it's pretty well. Yeah. I mean, I think it just depends on the, on the patient. Yeah. But I've definitely used it in this situation. Yeah, And it's recommended
1: with level B evidence. So I I think it's, it's worth it to try and definitely in those cases where the patients are quad deficient, you know, and you're, Mm -hmm. I would say don't shy away from it. in your patients that have had degenerative meniscus tears, um, You know, sometimes those folks are a little bit older, we're hesitant to use it on it, but they've probably been quad deficient for a while. Maybe not entirely quad deficient, but at least to some extent. Um, You know, it may take them much longer to get it back on their own. If you can do a little bit of E-STEM to help them along and get them functioning better than they were before, then I think that that's worth it. Um, That kind of summarizes the meniscus and articular cartilage lesions. There's a lot of overlap between the two. um, But again, knowing your outcomes, knowing the couple um, clinical exam things you're looking for different between the two, I think is really important. Do you
0: have anything there, Alexis, you wanted to add in? No, I don't think so. Um, you know, and obviously there was a lot that was similar between the two knee CPGs that we've gone over so far. And they kind of, um, this one even referenced back to the the previous knee CPG we went over. So, um, you know, in terms of just, I guess, study, um, organization, it would probably be good when you go through these, um, you know, to try and read them within, you know, the same week or whatever, um, you know, look, make sure you're looking at both of these and kind of look at them together and, and look at the things that they reference back and forth.
1: Sure. I, I will say too, just a little study pearl here that I did. I, when I studied this stuff, I actually went through and studied what was different about them. I felt like that was a little bit easier to sort through than trying to study everything that was the same. You know, yes, you mm-hmm. need to know what's the same, but then sometimes really honing in on what's different, I think may help it stick a little bit. Um, but that's just kind of I
0: guess how my brain works. So that may yeah. be true for somebody else. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Cool. So um awesome. Well, next time we'll be going over the ACL CPG, right? Yes, correct. So which is um, a newer so- one yes so we'll be discussing that next and then we'll kind of go from there so if you have any questions as always you can send us an email at certified podcast at gmail.com thank you very much <laughs>